So, designers discussing design. We're on episode 76, 2 plus 2 equals score. Uh, watch out, all you uh, bots out there. Uh, we might be getting you a little hot. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, we, we finally got hacked. That's right. Uh, we not only have hacked on our show, but we also got hacked by a bot. On our YouTube chat, we had a, a friend, a very friendly person that I had to block. Uh, so uh, we're on the map now. We're officially um, spotted by the Terminator. Uh, so, uh, Isaac, did you change your shirt? Yeah, he changed his shirt and then he, he had to leave. That's, uh, Nobody told me there was a costume change. There's a costume yeah. change, and if you yeah. didn't notice, scenery change too. Yeah, that's yeah. Why I scenery <laughs> change, but I was pretty pretty impressed by the costume. There he is. Oh, yeah, I just still the Superman. He was he was just getting tired standing, so he needed right. to sit. There you go. All right. Um, so let's get the party started. I think we've already had with the processing bot, but uh, let's talk about more math. I, 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 I got a couple of oh. I actually I have an interesting math that we never got into. Yeah. What about what about contracts? <laughs> Ooh. Oh, I mean, yeah. I honestly, a lot of people are afraid to talk about contracts, and I feel like this is the right crowd to actually talk a little bit about, like, not specifics, mm -hmm. but there's enough uh, uh, willingness in this crowd to maybe talk brass tacks, wisdom. You know, what do what if a new designer came to you and they were like. Uh, should I take this offer? Should I take this offer? They're offering me two percent. Like, nope. like well, let's talk. Like, what does that mean? Even is that net? Is that gross? Is that? Uh, let's talk a little bit about. Oh, this is good math. Yeah, let's yeah, talk good math. So, I mean, if we're gonna talk net versus gross and stuff like that, that is that's entirely discussable. Um, in, I mean, if you're talking percentages, then you're looking at that, but you're also looking at on what. So yeah. if we're talking Hasbro numbers, 50,000 units first press, I'd take 1% of that. Yeah, I would. Right? <laughs> sure. But if we're talking, you know, action phase, great guys, print run of, you know, 2,000 to 5,000. 1% of that or 2% of that is not enough, right? So right. you're looking at the size of the initial feed into the marketplace, where that market share is going, how, pe how much penetration they have, in terms of where this is going to go. And so sometimes you'll take a lesser deal just to get your name out there, sure. uh, to get your product to more people, because you know this company is spending the money on marketing, on real actual marketing, not just shoutcasting, right? So right. There's, there's some other stuff, some subtle nuances other than just the numbers. But if we're talking numbers, uh, let's discuss the, the whole idea behind net and gross and all that kind of stuff. Who wants to start? <laughs> I'm just going to throw this at somebody yeah. and you're going to have to catch it. Matt, go. Alright, I mean, so, I mean, the difference in, you know, net profits versus versus gross profits, I mean, like, your percentage of what you're getting paid on is where it really matters on how big that percentage is. Are you getting a percentage of MSRP? Are you getting a percentage of, uh, you know, what it costs to sell to the distributor? Are you getting a difference in percentage based on if they sell direct to the consumer through their website, if they're selling it to a distributor? I mean, all these numbers really matter. You know, when you if you're thinking about a Kickstarter publisher, are you know are you getting a percentage of you know what the Kickstarter sales are? Are you getting if the is that percentage coming before or after costs, both Kickstarter costs, shipping costs, printing costs, etc. I mean, like all these details really matter when you're talking about where that percentage is coming in. Uh, I mean, 
the end of the day, it's all calculable, uh, but you have to know, <laughs> you know, you have to know where it's coming in, period. Like, you know, what are you talking about when you're talking about percentage? Because, like you said, like 1% or 5% can theoretically be a bigger number than if they give you 15%, uh, yeah. you know, so it's, it, it really, really is tough to say. I mean, uh, I have a contract, you know, sorry. Yeah, Matt. Let, let me let me jump in on top of that. I think that for uh, j just for the sake of this conversation, it might be helpful to set some parameters. Uh, many contracts are based on uh, what you might see in a contract referred to as the net selling price, and what we usually sort of shortcut and call wholesale. Wholesale. Uh, yep. Right. And what what both of those things typically mean, and I say typically because read your freaking contracts; they don't always mean what you think they mean. <laughs> There's ways uh, to liquidate or find loopholes and you name it. There, sure, there sure are. And by the way, these contracts are often, uh, with apologies to, to Odd, hacked together and not necessarily um, the product of the finest legal minds. Uh, they have some inconsistencies in them. But for the sake of this conversation, net selling price or wholesale is the price at which the publisher sells the games to distributors. Right. Yep. Okay? And that's typically what your royalty is going to be calculated off of. Yeah. Uh, and if you go online, you'll see people bandying around numbers like five, six, seven, eight percent of wholesale as a typical range for. And typically, wholesale is like forty percent of what you're going to actually see. Yeah. Right. Like MSRP. Simple, simple right. math: fifty dollar game wholesales for twenty. If you've got a five percent royalty, you're getting a dollar per box. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's just for you know helpful. If your if your stuff is calculated on the base of uh, you know net sales at retail, uh, your percentage is going to be smaller. But these things yep. are scaled together. They Publishers, all kind of work out about the same. Right. right. And, I mean, most publishers are going to look at at uh, the at that wholesale cost because it is the cost that is actually the most fixed. Yeah. Right, and, and it's the number that comes in to their books, right? Yes. That's what they sell at, so it makes sense for them to pay out based on the pot of money they get. Yep. Right, as opposed to retail, which is set by who knows, right? Right, right. well, apparently it's set by Asmodee. <laughs> yeah, <apparently>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but uh, look, when you are entering into the Kickstarter world, things... That's a different story. story. Yeah, right. absolutely. And, and, and here's, so let's talk about that story. Yeah, yeah. Um, publishers love Kickstarter, especially for the fact that they're selling direct to consumers, and yep. that means that they're getting a much bigger slice of the overall pie. They've cut out the middleman. When yep. they sell you a game, right, that distributor, when they sell you a game on Kickstarter for $50, they get $50. If yep. you buy that game in a store for $50, they get $20. Yeah. Huge difference. Now, there are some costs that they have to shoulder that they wouldn't normally have to shoulder because of that, fulfilling, making a Kickstarter campaign to begin but with. Half, but half the time, it's them doing it anyway, so it's really like to their own benefit. Right, right. right. But it's a much bigger... Right, right, but it's a much bigger slice of the pie. So yep. when you're a designer and you're contracting with a Kickstarter uh, publisher, yep. you have to ask yourself, do you want to consider asking for a slice of that pie that's so much yep. bigger now. You know, that same game, if it's sold at retail, is going to return to you, you know, whatever it is, 5, 6, 7%, 
And if it's on Kickstarter, are you getting that five, six, seven percent off of the wholesale price or off of the price that they sell it to the That's backer right. at? Because the wholesale price is still the same. Yep. Right. That's twenty dollars or whatever on that fifty dollar game, let's say. Right, and push it further, speaking from a designer-centric perspective, if I'm going to a publisher and they're now going to go ahead and publish the game and they're putting their money behind it and they're taking all the risks, I'm willing to take a smaller slice. Of course. If they're taking it to Kickstarter and they're spending backer money, they're pre-selling the game, well, then there's a lot less risk, so... There's actually a little more risk down on the designer because it's not even necessarily for sure being made. Right, the yeah. offer isn't necessarily the same, and and so so two pieces there. One is for sure you want to reconsider uh, what you would be willing to accept fr- from the Kickstarter side of the pie. Yep. And then and then the second thing is the advance, right? And that's another mm-hmm. big part of the equation of what a deal is composed of. It's definitely questions like how big is the market and what percentage should I be looking for and so on. But the size of the advance is important because it functions as a kill fee typically as well. In other words, if your game isn't made within a certain amount of time or if the Kickstarter fails to fund, typically designers get to keep the advance. um, And and so so that mitigates your risk to some extent. Absolutely. So there was a conversation a little while ago on, on Twitter where some publishers were like, we don't like uh, advances. And they were saying, one of the, one specific publisher who I can't remember, so I'm not naming names because I don't remember. Um, I'm getting old. Otherwise, he would name you, so watch <laughs> out. <laughs> name it, shame. No, because it's not a shame. It's just their, their perception is if there was a problem, we'd just give you back the rights to the game. Yeah. And Kevin Wilson, I remember Kevin was in on this. Kevin said, well, oh, yes. but then I've lost time. Yeah. Like, I've lost I, the, I've, I can't, you know, to pitch to other people. You've, you've had it for like six months. Think of all opportunity those opportunities. Which oh, is, I mean, when, if you're talking game design and you're talking uh, action point efficiency, Matt, mm-hmm. opportunity loss is weird. one of the Ooh, biggest the losses in any game, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Like, if somebody takes my turn away in a game, I'm, I'm probably going to rage quit. Yeah. Because that's the worst thing that ever happens. So if you, as a publisher, take my game and don't make it, I need something back. Yeah. Right? That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm thinking. But right. this publisher is saying, well, no, we just we just destroy the contract. No harm, no foul. It's all done. Yeah, I know. And the next time a publisher says to me that they're not willing to offer an advance, I will say to them, I don't design games with lose a turn mechanisms. <laughs> off of contracts with no advance. Yeah. It's, it's the same it's like thing. Contracts with lose two year mechanisms. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, it, we it know we know a horror story example. Uh, Gordon Santorini. Oh, I mean, there's there's countless, but yeah, countless. Countless. but that is the greatest horror story that I know personally of someone. I mean, how many years are we talking now that Santorini's finally coming out? Eight, seven, I think. It's a long time. Seven or eight years of a guy who signed a deal with a good company, and then they crashed, and they tied up his contract. But, I mean, he thought, here's my game coming out, and, uh, you know, because you you signed a contract in a way, you don't pay attention to that. Opportunity cost. Thankfully, it's finally coming out. Roxley Games is going to be coming out with Santorini, and it looks gorgeous. But, I mean, the guy designed an incredible game that, had to just sit on the shelf for eight years. It actually might even be longer than that. I have to. I'll I have think to ask it is Gavin. longer. It might be I was 15. Just 
I, I think yeah, it might be a long, long time. Yeah, I was just looking at that, and actually, like that design has apparently been in like baking for a long, long, long time. Oh yeah, I, I mean, mean nothing's changed in years, but it, it is yeah. an, old, an older game. And but I know that uh, like... Orin has a game that's been tied up for perpetu- in perpetuity yeah. uh, by a certain other company, where yep. who no- nobody knows what's happening with it, and he'll never get it back. Ugh. Wow. From what we know, so never come back. Yeah, like Santorini is listed as self-published 2004. So you're looking 12, 12 years. years yeah. 12 years. Yeah. It's, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah and, and I have to say, in a world of Kickstarter, it's I think particularly <clears throat> frustrating for publishers to uh, to not put out in advance because. Oh. You know, they get an advance. And... Right, they're pre-selling the game. They're getting the <laughs> You know, in essence, I, I would be willing to forego an advance only in one circumstance, which is a larger chunk of the Kickstarter money. Yes, that's an excellent point. And I should uh, bring up, because I know, for instance, I've had this conversation with John Gilmore. He has always said, at the end of the day, he will always negotiate and try to negotiate away his advance if a company is willing to give more percentage on the game. Right. And, and the reason he does that and is because he believes in his game and he really has also had a hit, so his na- he knows his name carries enough confidence that he's, he's confident the game's going to sell. Right. Well, and it's a matter of how much you're willing to gamble on the long tail. Yeah. Because, Absolutely. look, you know, Matt and I have been in these negotiations a couple of times now, and... Um, We've had publishers uh, who work in different ways. There was there was a publisher that actually wanted to buy the rights in perpetuity for the game. They actually didn't want a license. They wanted to own the IP. Oh, so and work for hire. Oh, yeah, work for work for hire. Essentially, and and let's just explain what that means. Work for hire literally means what you made doesn't belong to you and will never belong to you again, and the company can do whatever it wants with it. Uh, and once they pay you, it's done. So now this company was not trying to. Uh, it's just how they function. It's how, and and for there are reasons why companies want to do that. And I, I and even though I'm not going to name this company, I want to be clear that yeah. they weren't trying to uh, be unfair in any way. They were offering a structure that was similar, ultimately, in terms of total compensation to a right. traditional licensing agreement. Sure. Uh, you know, so there were escalators based on sales and things like that. Sure. Uh, but, but, you know, we've seen that. We've seen companies that essentially pay for a whole print run up front. Yep. And what that means, though, is that stuff that they sell direct at conventions or through Kickstarter or whatever it might be that they sell at a higher number, you don't get that money. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, if they don't sell out the print run... You, they can't claw the, that money back from you for unsold. Yeah, you've out. already got the risk, and you got that guarantee sale yeah. off of that whole run. Right. right. So, so, so different folks handle it different ways. But if you believe in your game, you know, and Matt and I have had this conversation with publishers where we say, look, we have day jobs. Mm-hmm. This is not what we depend upon to put bread on the table. No. So it's for us, it's preferable to bet on the long run of the game. And, you know, I see it as it's another lottery ticket. Who knows? You know, in the words of Matt Riddle, nobody knows shit about anything when it comes to what's going to sell. <laughs> A little less cursing in there, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, so, so okay, well, maybe something will blow up. And 
what a shame it would be to have left a point or two on the table if that happens. Yeah. yeah. For an extra five hundred bucks today. Yeah. Right. So the short term versus the long term. Um, is there a game that you would sell outright? Is there a game? Is there a game that you would? Or is there a company that you would sell to outright? What do you think? Anybody? Well, do you remember that game Ultimatums we were talking about? Yep. <laughs> I'd sell that outright about two bucks. You could take it off my hands. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll tell you what. I, for, I, I think for me there's personally... There's a price. <laughs> right, there's a price. Number. There's a price there's for every number. Right? Yeah. yeah. That's, that's how Asmodee survives. There's always a price. Yeah. <laughs> so, so one of the companies that I can name that did do... Uh, Predominantly work for hires with kids, mm-hmm. um, because we're not talking any you know bad thing about them. But now that Zev's there, yeah, I was just gonna say different what do you story. Think? Will it be a different story? Will will their line no longer be based on work for hire? Will they have a better relationship, inventor relationship? Will people you know not have to sell their ideas whole hog to that company anymore because we have a person who has more experience with managing inventors what do you think anyone well i would just pipe in and say i don't think they'll change if it's a license that's possible so, right. if it's a license they want to they want to own it because they they're taking on way more risk with that license. So I would say that's not going to change with licenses, although I wouldn't be surprised with now having Zev in-house that Zev's going to just acquire some people to do some, you know, some talent he knows because he's so well-connected that a lot of those things will be kind of like Zev hybrids with finding people and working on things. So like quasi-in-house. Yeah, quasi-in-house where he's bringing in some talent that he knows, and that would be kind of a work-to-hire model. Goons, hired goons. <laughs> you know, I wish I'd asked Zev that question uh, when uh, when I had him on uh, on board games a couple weeks ago. Um, I suspect that is just awkward from... to say, by the way, on on board games. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, go yeah, ahead. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, guys, um, if you don't listen to or see, well, I guess listen to on on board games. <laughs> to listen to on board games, do so. Isaac's uh, on there every now and then, and it's awesome. Uh, thank you. Yeah, uh, uh, the show goes on every week. I'm on just about every other week. Uh, you can go to inversegenius.com or onboardgames.net to learn more. Uh, the the point is that uh, from talking to Zev, it seemed <sighs> like the business side of WizKids was not any different, and right. so I, and that just seemed like it was outside of his area. So I don't think their business practices are going to be different and. You know, you guys worked with with uh, IDW, Sen, right? You and Jay yeah, have done so, some work so with IDW. Yeah, so has Daryl you've done some as well. Uh, I know that some of the other IP publishers also really work on on that, you know, work for hire. They have to own the uh, uh, the IP. Does IDW work that way? Are you, are you no, co- sir. talking about that? Yeah, no, so no, it's, no, it's not that way. It's not work for okay. hire. Got it. So, so I, I think that you know, it seems like that is common among some licensed companies, but it's it nice to hear that. It is very common amongst a lot of them. Yeah. yeah, but it's nice to hear that it's not the only way. Um, and and look, some of this is also just designers kicking back and saying, "I'm not willing to work that way." Uh, and when you hear that, you know, often enough, a company has to sit back and say, "Yes, there are always other games, but if we love a game, we may have to change our approach." Right. Uh, so you know, publishers and game game designers of the world unite. Uh, we can we can fight Let's the power. Let's start a union. 
Yeah, I, mean, I think the, I think the power, I think the the thing to remember is that you know, as a as first time designer, you're always going to be like, well, nobody wants to buy my game. Who would want to buy my game? My game isn't probably that good. I'm, you know, and then you're like, yeah. you just really want to get published. You're constantly undervaluing your own. Yeah, game. you're totally. It's like creative types always tend to undervalue themselves across the board. Yeah. Uh, and it's until you finally realize how valuable your knowledge, your experience, you know, uh, really mm -hmm. is that you really start to say, no, I am actually worth something. I will turn you down even though you've given me an offer. Like, yeah. that's not fair. Nope, not going to happen. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's possible that they're the only ones that are going to give you an offer. And, oh, well, like, you just go on to the next creative thing. You like, may have just dodged a bullet. Yeah, you may, and you may have just dodged a bullet, exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's just... We've heard a few, first few horror stories from people who were so desperate to get their first contract that they signed something and are really unhappy with what they did. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and it, it just happens. Oh, by the way, Isaac, Manny Wong says, uh, has anyone told Isaac his voice sounds older than he looks? <laughs> and Manny also says that he's been the listening to Onboard Games and he loves it. He says it's a great podcast. So oh, yeah, I, love, I love whenever anybody can knock Isaac down a peg. That's awesome. <laughs> I don't know if that's knocked down. I don't know. It's I think like that he's, just sounds like better with age. Wild. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do hope I was actually listening to Iggy Pop uh, earlier today on uh, on a podcast, and I thought, you know, wow, he he doesn't he doesn't sound any different than he did when he was you know 25, and he's 68 now. Yeah. And uh, man, I mean, if I could sound like that, <laughs> I'll take yeah. it. Yeah. Just yeah. A, a, that gorgeous voice. But um, look, coming back to to the point that we undervalue ourselves, I think that. Uh, that first round, when you get that first contract, you are pretty much going to sign anything, and there are companies that will offer you what they offer because that's how they do it. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, and, and I know, for example, that you know, I got substantially the same contract for for Ravenous River as pretty much all the other games in that line, right? right? Like, which is nice. You kind of have a peace of mind then about that. For sure, right? And and you know, and and I, you know, when I spoke to John Zinzer about it, he's like, "Look, you know, we know what this line can do. It, it, yeah, could it be spectacular? Yes, but look, it's a small box line. It's a good opportunity for you. It's a good way for us to work. We publish lots of new and interesting designers with it. So yeah. that that feels good in a certain way. Um, yeah. In a sense, it's almost a, a the curse of the amateur is that the kinds of publishers that you tend to work with when you're starting out." Are smaller, are less experienced, may not have um, you know that same approach, and may look to you and say, ah, we can kind of squeeze a better deal here. We know that you know you're not going to say no, right? Uh, and and it takes you know it takes a few a few turns around the merry-go-round before you graduate. Uh, that but that's I think true of all creative endeavors, and those designers who are unhappy about their deals. I think also might have been unhappy in sort of any situation because getting published is it's awesome in a lot of ways, but it's also there's there's loss of control and uh, there's there there's parts of it that's hard that are hard to accept sometimes. Um, yeah, and yeah. becoming a professional means getting past that, right? And learning yeah. what role you play within this larger <laughs> picture of how a game gets published. Absolutely. 
Matt, you're so, I don't know what the math in that is. Maybe maybe we're subtracting happiness <laughs> and multiplying profits. Money, um, money plus happiness is minus. Yeah. 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 And I mean if you talk about it from the other from the other end of the stick as becoming you know, a self publisher going to Kickstarter, taking it there yourself. No. <laughs> then you're talking about multiplying not only your income, but also your problems. Yeah. It just becomes yeah. an like an economy of scale at that point in some regards, where it's like, yeah, you're getting a lot more money, but number. you know, mo money, mo problems. I was just gonna say that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Oh man. These are the deep deep quotes for the designer <laughs> to really dwell on. Yeah, no, they're not. <laughs> not at well, all. Well, I want to ask you, Matt. You you signed a, a two game deal with a publisher. Were yep. were the dimensions of that any different because it was a two game deal? Uh, no, it was the same contract for both games. I signed like, a five game deal. Two separate game, two separate contracts. The same wording in the contract for both games. So. Just a find and replace. Yeah, just pretty much a find and replace. Daryl, I don't even know how you sign a contract for five games. Did you design all five, or are you on the hook to, to design more of them? No, no, I designed them all, but they're co-designs. But yeah. they were all individual contracts that were identical. Hmm. So do, do, you, do any of you think that a game that you've designed should go for more? Like, how, do, you, do you sort of say, well, this is a big box game that I spent a lot of time on. I, I want 8% on this one, but... That was a card game that I, I, you know, I banged out over a weekend and tested for three months. I'll take five percent. I sold. I sell card games less than I sell my bigger games. Mm-hmm. I think that I don't know. I think that uh, I think we're gonna feel that in human nature, but I don't think we should. I think you're. I think anything that you have a creative touch in should. You don't. You don't feel a time ratio. Uh. Because I, the reason I did it was I said I turned it around faster. A lot. Yeah, faster. I mean, like I agree with you, and I could I could rationalize that. But the true math is is that like you're just all you're doing is you're lowering your expected value at that point. You know, you're lowering the value uh, because because you're gonna put more. You know, the correlation between five and eight percent, say the amount of time the amount of time you put into the card game, the amount of time you put in the big box game is not you know the 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 difference between five and eight percent. You're putting in way more time exponentially into that. No, big no, no. I game. realize it's also a different price point, different right. MSRP, so it's yeah, different. Is it a lot of times, is it like what name, your name and like what you what you bring to the game? So you should keep a standard. Like I don't know. I don't know if you should lower it for a card game versus another I, game. You should just well. And actually, that's a good point. I would depending on the company too. I think you you take a different rate sometimes depending on the company. Yeah, I mean it all. It, it it sadly it all does vary. And I mean, once if you become an established name, you or like you have a following, you can use that as a bargaining point. You know, if you just if you don't think that any other publisher is gonna is gonna design, you know, or gonna publish this game, and you just want to push that design out because you want it out there for some reason, um, you know, then you may accept a lower rate. And, you know, it's it's just like actors in Hollywood who will take different salaries. It's just you know, yep. to work on a piece that they really want to work on versus or uh, someone they really want to work with. It sure. was a favor. You could see it. You could see it a million. You know, not a million, a dozen different ways. Yeah, there's. Um, I mean, there's definitely, uh, definitely things that we've taken a cut off of the top to work with specific artists. Definitely. Yeah. To work on specific IPs, definitely for sure that happens all the time because IPs by themselves 
your rates are going to be lower because yep. it costs the company a ton to get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, sure, and then you, sure, but you make sure, it back. Sure why don't you share a little bit about the math of IP design? You guys probably have the, the most experience here on that front. Okay, I mean, with IP design, you're, you're definitely going to look at a much smaller percentage. Uh, so if your standard going stuff is, you know, anywhere 6, 8, 10, whatever it is, um, expect, you know, points to be shaved pretty severely. Almost half. At least, at least half, right? So you're looking at a lot lower, but <clears throat> what you're gaining is exposure. Mm-hmm. Not exposure for you, but potentially more games will get sold. And it's not even potentially; it's actually pretty much true. It's, it's pretty much true because they already have fan bases, right? Like right. we create well, every time we create a game, we're really creating an IP. Yeah, and, and whether so or not... our IP doesn't have a following yet. Yeah. Yeah, and and not just a, a following; it's also that these IP games are riding on top of marketing that's yep. happening in the broader culture. Absolutely. So it's not yeah. just the marketing that the game publisher is putting no. in. It's everything that exists in our cultural, you know, uh, uh, all that air around us. Yeah. But, but do you guys, uh, I've heard a figure that um, says that the IP, the IP holders, the one that uh, the license is being licensed from, claims something like 25% uh, it can be, yeah. It depends on the arrangement, but usually they... It can they, be flat they, fee it, where they're taking a, a sum off the front end. Chances are it's actually both. Yeah, it's, it's probably both. The publisher of the game pays for the rights to use that and gives a X percentage off the top of everything they sell to the uh, licensor. Mm-hmm. And then the licensee takes the money and pays you back out of whatever they're selling on, their, uh, you know, wholesale, whatever. And right, so, so they're losing a lot of money off the top to gain a lot of money in the end. They're, they're playing a long game and a short game at the same time. It's kind of interesting. Well, so think about that for a minute. If you normally would have made uh, 10% and now yeah. you're getting half of that, yes. you're sort of paying for one-fifth you're contributing. of the license. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're, <laughs> right? yeah. Not necessarily one fifth. It's a lot. It's probably yeah, less than yeah, that. Yeah, I, I just use easy numbers because we're sure, on the air. Because we're, we're, we're not because it's late and we're not Matt. Um, yeah. So you you are kind of you're taking a hit for the chance, and it's not even a chance because statistically speaking, um, so let's take a, an IP like uh, Princess Bride. Or Godfather. Or Godfather, but I'm taking Princess Bride because I actually know the numbers. Oh, good. So the numbers for Princess Brideopoly, so yep. Princess Bride Monopoly version, yep. you're looking at selling out of print runs that are in excess of 10,000 every time it prints. Yeah, yep. I mean, you're double dipping. And it's I gone think, through several print runs. I think yep. that's a weird... That's kind of a weird example, though. You're definitely double dipping the IP. Oh, yeah, into the Opoly and the... Yeah, thing. you're into the Opoly and yeah. the Princess Bride, and so it's like you have you have a double a double whammy. I mean, well, the reality is the Opoly IP in there is uh, much bigger than the Princess Bride IP. Yes. But, let, okay, so let's take Turtles, because it I just got, happened. Yeah, no, no, sure. I, got, I got another one that I know actual numbers. Yeah. NHL. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, okay, so NHL games, let's go. So, NHL hockey. Which you uh, Americans probably don't care about too much, but uh, we do. <laughs> oh, but it's actually, I think you're actually yeah, we pretty fascinating. We won the Stanley Cup last year, respect. Yeah, that, that was, that was <laughs> New York Rangers. 
Let's go Rangers. Um, <laughs> when, when our prime minister was in the states, Brock said, "Whose country has the Stanley Cup right now?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, shout out to Brock. Nicely done. Um, but uh, with because he uh, listens to our show. Yeah, he right. loves our show. Um, but uh, I, what is a? Uh, oh, I'm drawing a blank on the name of it. Not fast track. You can help me out on this hack. What is what is the Fabio's design? NHL. Oh, um. Face-off? Handoff? is the football one. What's the football one? Or what's the hockey one? <laughs> the hockey one. Uh, face-off? I don't know. But anyway. Anyway, say it's face-off or showdown or something like that. The CSE game. Guess, guess how many copies of that game has sold? Probably in excess of 50,000. 100,000, he thinks yeah. he just passed. Yeah. Right. And, it's, yeah, I mean, and it's a simple... He would say himself, like, he's not... He wouldn't say he's a great designer, but he designed a game that uses basically poker hands, moving a puck around, and you score on each other. Yeah, so, I mean, the reality of that is, is that, so, I mean, you can do the math there. If the average uh, print run for a hobby game is between two and 5,000, right, and you're going to be getting 100,000 copies instead, taking right. a 50% cut for 20 times the amount, the number of units sold yep. uh, is a no-brainer. I mean, yeah, the, the math just proves itself. Yeah, the math proves Good itself. If you have the money up front to pay for the IP. Right. Yeah. Well, but we, right. well, but we, as the designer, you're not worried about that. So anybody no, who's God concerned no. about, oh, I'm getting half the percentage that I would normally get, yeah, you're still fine. Like, if they're doing an IP, I mean, even if it only goes three times more, if that 5,000 becomes 15,000 yep. units, you're taking half the percentage, you're still making more money. Take yep. the deal. Like, yes. there's... Yeah. Right. Well, so let's turn this question around. As designers, are we designing games thinking about uh, the potential sales? Like, are, are, are we you, selling too cheap? Well, I, I guess when thinking about what you're designing, do you try and balance your portfolio between maybe you know more niche hobby style games that you know probably aren't going to sell more than five or ten thousand copies, even if they're well received, versus games that maybe are licensable or maybe games that are lighter. I mean, I just learned that Saboteur sold 250,000 copies. Uh, and, and, you know, I don't particularly love that style of game. No. But, you know, I, I look, I went and designed a Hidden Roll social deduction game in part because I thought, well, let's try and design something that has a chance of getting out there to, to help establish my own name as a designer, sure. even though it's not the area I might prefer to work in all the time. Is that something you guys think about too? Oh, definitely. I mean, we design games... Well, first of all, we design games that we want to play, that we like. We just happen to like a lot of different styles of games. And so we make a very versatile portfolio, and we can show a publisher at any given time any style of game pretty much, yeah. from a party game to a dexterity game to a kid's game to a hobby game to a card game to a 30-minute game to an hour-and-a-half game to a two-hour game. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that... you want to be versatile. Yeah, I, think if, I think if you're trying to be a designer, if you're really trying to take designing games seriously, that's what you should be doing. Uh, I mean, if you want to design a game as, you know, the thing you do, like, and that is your game... That's fine, and there are there are a lot of good games that are really highly rated on BGG that were in development for five years or more. That you know when they finally came out, like everybody's like, "This is the best game ever. Why can't more games be like this?" 
And sure, but you, like, even if that, but those ones that take that amount of development time tend to fall into the, you know, the upper range of, like, 25,000 copies sold where you, you have something that can, uh, if it breaches a higher, mar uh, wider market, you know, you're getting into the 100,000, the 250,000 copies sold, and it doesn't matter if it only has, you know, a 5.5 on BGG. Uh, you, you know, if, if you're doing it for money at that point or some, one of your goals happens to be money, uh, yep. you're gonna ha you should have games that can do that as well. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, if you're... Oh, sorry. Go, Go for it, Hack. Sorry. Yeah, I I wanted, so I, I have this game, uh, 10 Down, right, that we worked, we did with Fabio, and I that was designed with mass market in mind, right? That That's a game that has potential to sell a lot. You know, if it gets into Target or into Walmart, it can be on the shelf. It can sell 100,000 or something like that if it's done properly. Mm -hmm. So, like, you're always think. well, I'm always thinking about trying to get a game like that. I mean, I, I've always had these other ideas, but I'd love to get into the mass, like, get into mass market. Um, yeah. I, even I if think... I have to take a lower percentage or whatever, I just, to, to be, get my game to sell more and to be out there. So I, ju I just listened to the podcast, I forget what the official name of it is, that uh, Ignasi and Bonacure do. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and so a really good podcast. People should listen to it. Um, it's, called, uh, it's called Board Games Insider. Insider, right, thank yes, you. Yes. So yeah. I just listened to the last episode. Uh, I think it was the last episode at least. Uh, maybe there's one out in the last day or two. Um, but I just listened to it, and they were talking, you know, even from the publisher standpoint, it's the same kind of question. Are you at a Days of Wonder style that you put out one game and you – you know, you make sure that you market it, and it has to be a hit, and it's going to be this huge hit, like Matt was saying. You spend all these years working on, or do you try to acquire, put out more and more titles? You know, same thing even with partnerships with publishers. I think it's the same thing with co-designing. I mean, both of you guys co-design. You both are capable of designing on your own, but you have come to the realization you like working together. It seems to, it seems to be efficient. It seems you know you can put more games out there together. Oh. Yeah, I mean, the truth of the matter is that these are all markets, right? Uh, I mean, there's going to be, there's a market share here, a market share there. You're talking about economics at this point. Like, there's going to be games that need to be used to fill this market. There's going to be games that need to be used to fill another market. So it's like, yeah, there, there's, depending on what you want, what you want to accomplish as a designer or as a publisher or anything, like, you get to make that choice and then make sure you stick to that choice. You know, trying to... <laughs> yeah, trying to uh, like waffle one way or another and be like, well, I have this, you know, this game that should go into Walmart, but then you sell it to a publisher that has no connections to get something into Target or Walmart. You know, you just you didn't do the right thing at that point. You made a very poor decision. So yeah, or you didn't know any better, right? Or you didn't know any better. Or, or yeah. the publishers promised something that they couldn't do at the Deliver time where they didn't know, right? So yeah. a good story for that is Train of Thought, one of our games. It's a game that is perfectly suited to be in Barnes & Noble or that kind of store in terms of a, you know, easy to pick up, light party game. That's a word game. Sure. Uh, and it was picked up by Tasty Minstrel when they were just kind of starting out. It was like their third or fourth game ever. Mm -hmm. And at the time, Michael Mendes really didn't know how to get a game into Target or Barnes and Noble or anything like that, 
and he was going to try with this, and he just ended up not doing it because other things were going so well for him in other regards. Like the effort to do that wasn't worth the effort, or it wasn't worth taking away his it lost the, it effort. Lost the yeah, his effort from right. the Kickstarter stuff that he was doing at the time, right? So he was putting his effort where his eggs where they were the most fruitful. That was like a bunch of mixed metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, I mean, it's not that they gave up on Train of Thought, sort of they did, but in the end, you know, we're, we'll get the IP back and we'll do whatever we can with it. Right. Uh, it was sort of a, a lost, um, what's the word? Opportunity. Opportunity. opportunity, an opportunity what, what, do you, what do you think? What do you think though? Is it almost a gamble though worth taking? Like, do you think? Do you guys find that you're pitching your games to people that you know for sure it's going to work out like that, or are you trying to catch like a rising tide? Like, are you trying to match yourself with some companies that you think are risers that are going to do well, and you could like a part of me wants to not only work with, sure, these great, great companies, but I also want to work with a company where my game's part of the reason they, they rose. Like, wouldn't that... I, I, think, I think it's uh, something that we're uh, dealing with uh, a little bit differently in this year than in the previous year, uh, which was our first year in, in partnership together, and uh, which uh, even that has changed compared to the previous year when we were working separately. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, in the, I think it, look. I think in the beginning, you you make games, and uh, probably you make fewer games, uh, and you have maybe the one game that you're sure is going to be a thing, and maybe it's two or three games, and you're kind of shopping them around because, uh, like Michael Mendez, you aren't necessarily yet pouring as much effort into design because you're not sure that anyone's going to publish you ever. Right. So you try and get that first thing published. Um, and it doesn't matter who it is. I mean, my first game that was signed, uh, I've gotten the rights back to. The game has never been published. It was a very, very small publisher, and uh, basically he decided to stop publishing um, and focus on other pursuits. So, you know, you go through that evolution. Did you get, um, a, did you get a, an, a, an advance on that? <laughs> <Yeah>. an advance. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I did not get an advance on that contract, and it was the last time I settled for not getting an advance. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that is now the story that every couple like of years... You only get burned once. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. But, but the reality also is that I don't know that I would advise uh, beginning designers to make a stink about that or to, to kind of insist on that. Not not so much because the publisher is going to get angry and rescind the offer, or not because you know you're not going, but because the difference between zero and your advance is irrelevant compared to the difference between being unpublished and being published. Right. So you know, I, um, it may be a signal that yeah, I was you know, just going to say there is maybe something to be read into it. Yeah, yeah, and and look, you know, I I went in with eyes open. I knew that this was a small-time publisher within a niche industry and so on, and I, I was well aware that it had risks. Um, mm -hmm. but, but that publisher wanted the game without a re-theme, and that was important to me, versus right. other I'm offers like... that were, you know, to take it with the... So with that, the that's what that's you're a, willing to sell your soul point. for? No, no, no. Actually, I think that's a really... Yes, uh, the, the game was called Conquest of Canaan, so yes, it was <laughs> yeah, for my heritage. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Nice. On that note, though, actually, I think that's a really interesting point. Creative control, 
and different things. I mean, I know I've been involved where I've I've shaved points or paid you know different things on uh, on having a, an artist involved. Uh, have you guys ever done certain things like that, or or in your talks has things like that been brought up? Totally, totally, yeah. Um, <clears throat> we might not have shaved points, but we've definitely worked it in that you know we'd be willing to forego certain things right. if, because we we know that with a certain artist that's matched with this certain product and you as the publisher let's it's go gonna, let's let's make this happen because that'll be awesome yeah i mean then you're talking about you actually have a vision for the design of the product not just the game mm-hmm. yeah right so at that point you want to make sure that uh, how you envision it and how you believe it to be most successful you know doesn't the publisher agrees with you uh, and is willing to go with it. So, and, and that, that's one thing's part of. Sorry, that's why self-publishing is great because you can make all your own decisions, but then you might not have the connections to do so. Yeah. Sorry, Isaac, what were you saying as well? Yeah, I was saying that the uh, that's I think part of the evolution uh, or the growth and the maturation of a game designer. I personally don't feel. Like, I have a great sense for what is going to make a game a great product yet. I have some sense in terms of the game design and the overall experience and so on, but when it comes to the aesthetics... So. Right, right, so sure, that's part of it. <laughs> that's part of it, too. By the way, that's that's something you learn also. I mean, I have early designs that they would be terrible as products, <laughs> even though they're fun to push around your living room. Yes. Um, you know, but I'm not yet at the point where I understand... Uh, the aesthetics well enough that I understand the trends in the market as well as I'd like to. I, I don't think that I'd be a good publisher, and I think most of my Kickstarter backers would agree. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I, like, I love actually seeing what comes back from other people touching the game. Yes. Yeah. I, I think that that's my favorite part of this all. Yeah. And, and I really enjoy seeing what you know artists like um, Ron or Josh or any of the artists that we work with, um, you know Quan Chai, have come back and said, "Oh, look at this!" And it's like that is so much more awesome than I could even have envisioned it. And so that's yeah. I will I will take points off to have those people involved. Well, because uh, if it has to happen, right? Don't let anybody know that. But I well, would. but going back to well, but going back to math, you're willing to do that because you believe that pairing will sell you more units on the back end than if you did mm-hmm. not have that pairing, and therefore yes, you're going to make a higher financially. Yeah. And it's just a no-brainer decision. Yeah. And so going yeah. back to the question about do you do we do we fish for certain publishers? Hundred percent, hundred percent. When we target, well, you should have you should publishers. you should somewhat even when you make a game be. Asking yourself the question, who's the right publisher for this, right? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm not oh, sure for Matt told sure. me. <laughs> there's that. There's that thing that Matt said. I wouldn't ask myself any of these questions, but uh, <laughs> definitely not. Not you, Matt. Other Matt. Yeah. Uh, definitely, uh, we have totally have publishers in mind. I have publishers that I want. Publishers that we court mm-hmm. uh, specifically, saying this is a product that we would love to place with you because we think you could do it justice. Yeah. Uh, and it's a win-win situation, or we hope it's a win-win situation. If you had this product that you also think is awesome, we think you're awesome, we've seen the work that you do with product X, Y, and Z that are either similar or where we'd like to be or where we think this product can go, and that makes that the match made in heaven, right? And everybody can make money. Yeah. I think that's the yeah. thing that a lot of people have to understand is that there's, you know, it's, it is a money-making industry. Not everybody has to lose money. Right. The math yeah. works out. 
The math yeah, doesn't work out for people money. to make money. Yeah, especially when you're talking, you know, even on those, you know, I mean, if we're to, you know, 100,000 print runs, you know, that's, everybody's making money on 100,000 units sold. Yeah, yeah, and talking to, to designers out there, a lot of our inter our conversation in our echo chambers is uh, around how do you pitch publishers and what does the pitch look like and what does your sell sheet look like and what does your prototype look like? And those are good questions. But I think that what Sen is talking about is what it really looks like when you're in this industry in a more significant way. You're not pitching and hoping that a publisher likes your game and says, yeah, you're a good designer. You're coming to a publisher saying, I have a product that I've built that will be of value to your company. Mm-hmm. And Definitely. let's talk about extracting mm-hmm. that value together. That's a whole different way to talk to a publisher yeah. than, hey, sit down and play my game for 15 minutes. And yeah. it starts there, though, right? And then you get that that expertise like Matt has with mathematics, where it's all encapsulated. He, he just does it without thinking about it. And then once you get you know a few games under your belt, then you have this kind of sense of where to go and what to do and what publishers are looking for what or what they do particularly well um, in what they're looking for, in what they can do with that product. So all that stuff comes to play. And I, I think if you are a game designer who isn't getting out there and meeting people and trying to understand the business, you're really doing yourself a disservice if game design is something you want to do as a profession. Actually, publish, like, yeah. Yeah, I was yeah. say, getting published as a game designer is something you wanted yeah. to do. Yeah, and uh, it, like, like Matt said, if you want to just make one single game and that's your magnum opus for the rest of your life, that's fine. You can do what you want. Yeah. But if you Don't want to be that. a professional, it, it takes effort. Yep. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that Daryl is running low on power, which is why he hasn't been talking much lately. <laughs> He's at like 3% by now. <clears throat> so on that note, I think we are going to call it a show. Um, so thanks so much for coming on the after show. We normally don't run this long, but you guys are wildly entertaining and informative. And for the boring math topic that we got today, <laughs> you, you know, the math topic. numbers into games. No, 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 no. You should see the feed. People are like, this is a really good topic. These guests are awesome. I might actually buy their game now because they're so cool. That's good. Yeah. Next yeah week, I, I we'll think someone back. said they're going to be happy with the math because of it. Next yeah, week, we'll be back for RGB versus CMYK. Yeah. <laughs> no, what? There's actually, there, there, there should be that topic. Sorry. I, I don't think a lot of people in desktop publishing land actually understand the difference. Right? I don't think <laughs> do you think that we what as designers need to understand that difference? No, though? no, I mean, we don't. But so many people no. are going into self-publishing that they actually kind of do. Yeah, then if you're going to be a self-publisher, you need to understand the difference between that. Absolutely. We're not the publishing show. Right. That is a publisher show, exactly. But, I mean, we could get a graphic designer on to talk about that. Anyway, uh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, Daryl, you want to wrap the show? Oh, yeah. I've only been doing for two minutes. Go ahead. All right. Uh, well, I just want to say thanks again to everyone, and just encourage uh, if you're if you like what we're doing, check out the website, check out our YouTube, check us out on iTunes, all those things. The, just what the, basically, what, something Google. weird just happened. I'm just gonna switch to you, Daryl. Yeah, that looks that looks awesome. Oh, <laughs> I don't oh, know what happened. No, it's not coming back. No, well, it's not. On that note uh, of uh, Sen's computer crashing. No, it's uh, not. Well, thanks, everyone, and have a great night, and uh, we look forward to chatting with you next week.
See, there it is. Back. Bam. There it is. <laughs> thanks, guys, so it. much for having us on. No yeah, problem. Thanks, thanks ton, guys. Yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.